The uh, Star Tribune and a number of other outlets gaining access to uh, texts and emails what took place during the week of uh, peaceful protest and violent protests, which included the burning of the 3rd Precinct in Minneapolis. All this took place the week of Labor Day after the death of George Floyd. And now we have some pretty strong differences between Jacob Fry and uh, Tim Walls, mayor of Minneapolis and governor of the state. Playing politics now, Patricia Lopez and John Rash from the Star Tribune on the Centerpoint Energy Home Service Plus Hotline. Pat, I'll go with you first. Jacob Fry, in an interview with your paper, said that Tim Walls hesitated to send in the National Guard, and then Tim Walls and others are saying that Fry did not provide enough detail in what the city needed. We obviously have talked about this in the broadest sense before, but when we saw some of the specifics, what jumped out at you most? Um, I, I am very interested in that time lag, and um, this would seem to call for um, a deeper examination, which is something, frankly, Republicans have called for, into how events unfolded. And uh, with this kind of uh, varying story between two of the leading figures, I, I think that, you know, that may in fact have to happen so that um, we can get to the bottom of this. The one thing that has always struck me from the beginning is to what extent is a city mayor expected to have a strategic plan uh, for yes. the National Guard in an emergency in his city. I, I've always been curious about that aspect of it. Are they supposed to know how to deploy the squads and what kind of equipment to bring? I'm, I was always a little puzzled by that and also by the formality of the ask. You know, why wouldn't a simple phone call be um, sufficient? Why, how much more would they need it to have had? And I think we need to know these things going forward because this kind of thing could very well happen again. John, I think Pat nailed a couple really good points. I think it was in the Senate where Republicans already had hearings. I think we need more. I don't think we heard enough, and it should be bipartisan. And I know there was differences on whether the Republicans had reached out enough, if the Democrats were participating or not. But I'm with Pat on this. This I, I have felt, listen, I was critical of both, mm-hmm. and, and I don't back away from that. But I've I've made this point on the show many times that I think Walls hasn't received quite enough criticism. And I'm sorry when this story is happening and it's unraveling and the mayor and again, not taking him off the hook is saying to the governor, we don't have the numbers and we need help right now. This is to me. This is a point, John, where you say, "Okay, get back to us with your bullet point and your PowerPoint presentation and we'll get back to you. To me, that needed much more of an immediate response. Uh, That's how I thought a bit at the time, and it's only augmented by the conversations now. Well, first, credit to our colleagues in being able to piece together this story, which gives Minnesotans not the complete picture, but a much more focused one on what transpired between the mayor and the governor. And he had described the city's response as an abject failure. And There's no question that an abject failure took place, but as you and Patricia and several in the legislature have pointed out, getting to the bottom of what the cause and communication breakdown of that abject failure is very, very important. Now, I don't think that that should get in the way to bring badly needed aid, particularly to Lake Street 
area businesses and to try to get the city back on its feet. But this is not something that simply can be ignored, and indeed it should be intensified in terms of investigating what really transpired here. And neither individual, the mayor or the governor, are coming across well here, but what really needs to come across is the truth in terms of what happened, why it happened, and especially how it won't happen again. Patricia, let me give you a couple more Walls quotes from yesterday when he was responding to this. Mm -hmm. I don't think the mayor knew what he was asking for. I think the mayor said, I request the National Guard. Woo, this is great. We're going to have massively trained troops. No, this is Walls again. Mm -hmm. No, you're going to have 19-year-olds who are cooks. He also says, Walls, that when Fry asked about the potential of the guard, I asked, what do you want out of the guard? It's not like pulling a can out. What units do you want? What their capabilities need to be? How are you going to deploy them? First of all, I'm sure some of the National Guard members are going to look at that quote and not be real pleased. Mm-hmm. And again, I'm sorry, how many of the mayors yeah. all across the country in major cities, when this happens, this fast are going to have a specific laid-out plan that has been passed either to mayor to mayor or they knew this when all of this happened in such a short period of time. You know, um, Chad, if that's going to be the standard, that has to be gamed out well in advance. Uh, Mayors need to know uh, when they take that office that if there's a crisis, they're going to have to have a fully developed plan. I don't know if Jacob Fry was ever in the military or not, but um, the level of detail that seems to be requested here, I'm not sure anyone who didn't serve in the military would be capable of developing that kind of plan. Um, So that could have been a lack of communication right there. Plus, as events were unfolding that night so rapidly, um, I'm sure that he was probably in, you know, not a state of panic, but certainly heightened uh, alert, thinking, I need to make this call to the governor, and then I'm going to get some help and then instead find out there are more hoops to jump through. I just, um, more um, more needs to be done on this because it's not a situation that we can afford to have happen again. No, and, and, and John, I will say again, um, there were definitely decisions uh, that Fry made that week where I still question the decision to pull troops away yes. from the third precinct um, that was encouraged by Jeremiah Ellison and others that the crowd would further disperse from the precinct if the police officers weren't there. That was a major mistake. I'm not trying to convey, hey, this is all on walls. But as Pat has pointed out, when we now have this information and what requirements should be if something happens again soon or if we're observing this across the country, what role mayors have to play, and especially with Tim Walls's National Guard background, I would think this is when Walls could have even been more proactive. Because let's not forget, when the guard finally came out, the first day the guard still took, John, a very secondary role. And it was almost multiple days before the guard was out there in force in a way that completely ended more of the violent side of the protests. Indeed, it was multiple days, and it intensified after the initial call for the Guard. And you mentioned Governor Walz's years of service to this country in a National Guard uniform. And he, more than anyone, 
more than nearly any governor across the country, given the length of his service, understands that the military reports to civilian authorities and certainly should understand the construct of civilian authorities you know, are going to either in the commander-in-chief's role directly order, or in this case, Mayor Fry's role, to request help, but won't necessarily know, as Patricia has been pointing out, exactly what should be done and, and what should be requested. I've traveled with the National Guard overseas twice, once to Kuwait and once to a major NATO training exercise in Lithuania. And as I'm sure both of you would concur in your association with the Guard and your years of, of journalism, you know, they are among the finest Minnesotans, and we're, we're very blessed to have them here. Yes, They're absolutely. extraordinarily capable, and if you give them a mission, they can and will act accordingly and quite quickly. And yes, there probably was some uncertainty as to exactly what the mayor was requesting, but I think that what would have been incumbent upon all the parties at that point would be, in effect, to say, what is the situation on the ground as you exactly know it from the chief of police and your people who are contending with this, and how can we best help? And then I think it's up to Major General Jensen and the Guard leadership and the um, government leadership under, under Governor Wallace to say, here's what we can and when we can do to help you and to move forward. And seemingly there was a breakdown there, and the effects are still reverberating in this community, in this state, and across the country. Yeah, it seems like they needed to be figuring that out together instead of playing what, in retrospect, seems like a game of hot potato. Um, as, as for the governor's remarks about the guard, I don't know what prompted him to say something that came off so dismissive. Um, yeah, you know, I thought I, it was I very know, dismissive. I know that the governor has the greatest respect for National Guard troops. Many of them have served in actual combat in arenas of war. Um, so they are far more than just a motley assortment of, you know, volunteer cooks and weekend warriors. That's, that's unfair, and I'm, I'm guessing that if he could take that back, he would. My, my um, supposition is that he was trying to convey that this was a volunteer force mm -hmm. that needed yeah. direction and specificity. But again, that is part of the role of the commander-in-chief, which is him. Let's pause here. Among the issues we'll get to when we come back, what is now a, a much-discussed debate uh, involving Congresswoman Ilhan Omar and, at minimum, with one of her opponents, Anton Melton-Mukes. We had a debate involving those two and also John Mason last Friday where money came up. Money continues to come up. So we'll talk about that race and what's going on with the uh, president and Joe Biden. It's playing politics, this uh, partnership with uh, WCCO Radio and the Star Tribune. Primary day is uh, next Tuesday. We certainly on this show and the Star Tribune also have covered the race for the 5th District involving the congresswoman who holds a seat, Ilhan Omar, and who will emerge for the Democrats, whether it is Ilhan Omar trying to retain her seat, Anton Melton Mukes, and other individuals. We had those two and John Mason as a part of a debate on this show last Friday at 1 o'clock. It still is available to you if you go to WCCO Radio, Twitter, and Facebook. I, John, I'll go to you here first, ask all of them pointed questions. Uh, John Mason has raised $111,000, all but 11000 was loaned by him. 
Anton Melton Mukes. Uh, last quarter, $3.2 million, which was a stunning figure. But the Omar camp has suggested it's from a lot of Republicans, a lot of Trump supporters, a lot of Mitch McConnell supporters, and people that they are suggesting will never vote for a Democrat. They just want Ilhan Omar out. And Representative Omar, I asked her, of your $3.4 million expenditures, why has $1.6 million went to your husband's consulting firm, and should your family be benefiting? Well, your paper today had another story from the Omar camp suggesting that Melt Mukes is, is skirting, the Omar group is suggesting that he is skirting campaign finance laws. Will money determine this, John? And then, Pat, you next on how people view how these two contenders are getting their money, who they're getting it from, and spending their money. How It won't be the only thing to determine it. I know that. But how big of a factor will it be? The primary has turned into a, a referendum on Representative Omar. And part of that narrative is the amount of money that has been raised and the fact that it indeed has been funneled through her husband's company. Now, this certainly is a significant story and a uh, significant allegation from the DFL regarding her primary opponent. And it is something that needs to be looked into and needs to be considered by many voters here at this point. But I don't think that this individual dynamic will be determinative in terms of how people go about voting here. I think the the broader point regarding money is one that you brought up that, you know, people may wonder why so much is being spent here and if indeed a considerable amount is being raised outside the district and by some people who may not be traditional DFLers, let alone fifth district DFLers, that is a reflection of the fact that she has become a polarizing figure within Washington and beyond. And that seems to be what the overall arc of the, of the campaign has been about. So I think that'll be the bigger issue. Pat, chime in. Well, it's um, it's unusual to see uh, the DFL party get this involved in uh, a primary fight. They came hard after Anton Milton Mukes with that um, uh, campaign finance complaint that they filed with the SEC, um, knowing, of course, that uh, Omar herself is the subject of an SEC complaint over fundraising that was filed by a conservative group uh, not long ago. And it is over this issue of uh, travel expenses and her husband's, her new husband's um, political consultant firm, of which she is a partner. So most of her money has gone to that. And, of course, that household benefits because we have joint property in this state. Uh, It's hard to tell. It doesn't seem as though it's illegal on its face. A lot of people think it should be. But there's a lot of dirt going around uh, in this campaign. As to the amounts of money being raised, um, I'm curious at the idea that somehow accepting money from donors who give to both sides somehow taints it. We see the very same dynamic going on in Joe Biden's race against uh, President yes. Trump, where the Lincoln Project has entered in full square on Biden's side, spending untold amounts of money. Um, we have lots of donors that give to both sides. I, is this is this no longer okay? It's it's a little confusing. Let's switch here to and, and Pat. I'll start with you. The fact that we've known for a while we would not have a, a conventional convention because mm-hmm. of COVID nineteen. 
Mm-hmm. But both have, have basically said today that Biden's going to be at the House, and guess what? The president's going to be at his house right now, which is the White House. Considering the state of this race, who benefits from this, Pat? You first. The, I, the, uh, the challenger, who is ahead, we can debate how much he's ahead by, but yes, he is ahead, or the incumbent, who can show the power and the trappings of the White House. Um, you know, he, he would be showing the power of the tra- and trappings of the White House, but he would also be tainting and dishonoring them. I mean, you know, with all of the campaigns that we've seen over the years, the decades, we've never had a president who's resorted to this, um, you know, trying to, to use the White House as the backdrop, um, the staging center for his reelection campaign. I think that's going to rub um, a lot of people the wrong way. My guess is it may rub a lot of Republicans the wrong way. Um, so I don't know that that is necessarily going to be a net gain for him if he even does that. Um, as for Biden staying uh, in Delaware instead of traveling to Milwaukee, that's probably a smart thing given um, his age and uh, whatever other conditions he may have. And I think people get that in this pandemic time. At the same time, it does rob him, I think, of a bit of the momentum and the stagecraft that you get with an actual full convention. It's, you know, it's like the difference between meeting somebody in person and doing a Zoom call. You still do it, but it's not quite the same. How about you, John? Vice President Biden is ahead in the polls, and so this is a neutralizing event. And so I think that in the end, that helps the challenger. From this perspective, that President Trump really enjoyed and clearly benefited from his mass rallies in 2016, which he continued on throughout his presidency up to and including during the pandemic era. And the fact that he won't be able to do that, particularly when accepting the renomination of his party, is something that he clearly and sorely missed, which is why he wanted to move the convention from North Carolina to Florida and now as aforementioned, you know, perhaps the White House, which itself, Patricia quite accurately points out, is quite controversial. Speaker Pelosi uh, from the House of Representatives just blasted the idea of, of using that for such a direct political event today. And I think that'll grow in controversy. Whereas Vice President Biden generally comes across better when he's more scripted and on message than when he's off message. And that can happen during a big address in front of a big rally. So I think that it won't have a demonstrable effect on the race. And if that's the case, that's what the vice president wants because he's leading in the public opinion polls. About 20 seconds each one of you. The Biden VP announcement seemingly has been delayed by about 10 days or so. Give me your pick right now. John, you first. If you had to guess, educate a guess, uh, who, who will be the VP nominee? All of the short listers have come up with controversies, and so he'll go with the safest of them because she's already been vetted, which is Senator Kamala Harris of California. Patricia? Yeah, I um, I will be surprised if in the final um, analysis he doesn't pick uh, Kamala Harris. I, I don't think you actually want uh, a woman who has no ambition uh, to be president because that is, yeah. after all, what the vice president is for. And they need someone who can run in four years because Joe Biden will be, you know, most likely too old to do a second term. 
Um, why would they give that up and turn that into an open seat? That makes no sense to me. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank, Thank you. you.